0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host.
1: I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And I woke up this morning, thought it would be a blast, but now here I am stuck with Josh on the podcast, I got the blues podcasting with josh bell blues
0: that is quite i like how you did both the (laughs) vocals and the guitar sounds in there yeah
2: that was excellent are we gonna get singing every episode this season
0: (laughs) this in 1987 big year for music yeah yeah so (laughs) i i look forward to more
1: uh original musical numbers (laughs) well that was my homage to blues great albert collins who appears in this film josh he
0: does indeed in this season we're talking about the films of 1987 no 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 yeah i'm not going to i'm not going to turn everything into a blues song here but we are talking about uh, feature debut filmmaking debut and it is from director chris columbus the film is adventures in babysitting which does feature the babysitting blues probably the highlight of this film i would think right I think that's what Ebert said too. Ebert did. He, both Siskel and Ebert, I think, were were big fans of the babysitting blues moment in this movie. Yeah. So uh Do you
1: think they were in the audience like
0: na, 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 I, I actually, you know, you joke about that, but uh I watched the segment and Ebert does exactly what you did. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in, in what company. context yeah uh, he's it's, explaining what the scene is and he says oh yeah she comes out and she says something about and then he does the da 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 you know so uh, he's right there with there you they didn't sing the, uh, the two thumbs up blues or
1: whatever it might be it would be I guess it would be two thumbs down blues because there's nothing to be blue about if you're giving two thumbs up Josh true true that is a fair point so
0: Adventures in Babysitting was, yes, the directorial debut from Chris Columbus, who had previously worked as a screenwriter, including on Gremlins, which is a movie that we have covered here on Awesome Movie Year. And weirdly, though, he decided to make his directorial debut with a movie that he did not write. The screenplay here is by David Simkins, although it does feature, I think, some Chris Columbus-ish elements, if we want to. Described that way. I mean, to me, Chris Columbus feels like he's a disciple of John Hughes. And so this movie is clearly indebted to John Hughes, and thus it has kind of a Chris Columbus style.
1: Yeah, I think you got to add in Zemeckis, you got to add in Spielberg, you know. So all these kind of uh, 80s icons that in, you know, Hughes, obviously with the teen movies, but I think with the whimsy of uh, Zemeckis or Spielberg, especially in his writing. Okay. Not present really in this movie, though. No, but I mean, before this, he wrote, you know, like you said, Gremlins, The Goonies, Young Sherlock Holmes. I mean, come on, you know, you couldn't see Spielberg doing a Young Sherlock Holmes, right? No, you're
0: you're right on that, and those are less John Hughes-ish, and of course, Spielberg did produce Gremlins, um, but I guess I think of of Columbus as a filmmaker, you know, and of course, he had a big hit with Home Alone, which was written by John Hughes, but as as this kind of John Hughes maybe imitator or, you know, you could put it in a more charitable way. But uh, anyway, it is always uh, weird. Josh,
1: Josh does not
0: like Chris Columbus. No, I mean, this is the thing is that like, I, it's not that I dislike Chris Columbus. There are some of his movies that I think are pretty good. I just don't think he has a distinctive auteur style. And I think for what we've done previously in this episode, which is to look at the debut of a a major filmmaker who has a distinctive body of work, this is not, that kind of filmmaker. Well, oh, he has a distinctive body of work. He has a body of work. I think distinctive is not really the word. He wrote word for
1: Gremlins him. and the Goonies. He directed Home Alone, he directed Mrs. Doubtfire, he directed the first two Harry Potters. Like what do you want from this guy? No, I'm saying he's he's been
0: a very successful at times Hollywood hack. I don't think he has a distinctive artistic vision for any of his work.
1: Oh, well. You're you're a big man, aren't you? <laughs>
0: I'm just saying I looked through the list of the the previous filmmakers that we've covered here, and he does not really measure up even to like Ben Affleck as a filmmaker, I
1: think. I am going to say, I mean, he's not my favorite director, but he he has written two classics in Gremlins and the Goonies, and he directed at least... Probably well, Home Alone to me is a classic and then I would say other people would say Mrs. Doubtfire is a classic. So Yeah. I, I mean, think you're just a hater, Josh. I I think he's been
0: very successful at the box office in a lot of ways, and that is good for him. Um, and this movie, uh, was a success. I think I couldn't find any info on the budget. It grossed $34.4 million at the box office, which is not a huge number, but is I think pretty decent for 1987. And it seemed like it was a pretty big pop culture thing. It was nominated for two kids choice awards for favorite movie and favorite movie actress for Elizabeth Shue, who stars, of course, as the babysitter here. She's quite charming. Are you going to hate her? No, I like her. She's the best thing about this movie by far. And uh, she, however, did not win the Kids' Choice Award. No.
1: Do you know who did? Some other person uh. that kids liked. No, I didn't look that up. Yeah, I uh, I do agree with you, though, on the uh, the ian aspects of this. You know, uh, even in this movie, you see, like, the... You know, the hot babysitter that the younger, the older brother, but who's younger than the babysitter is like, you know, wanting to be with but can't be with and, you know, all the all these kind of fun, Hughes teen angst things are in there. And uh, like you said, you know, referencing that blues club, I mean, you know, there's a great scene in Planes, Trains and Automobiles with... uh with John Candy singing some uh, Ray Charles in there. So there's plenty of those elements, I, I would say.
0: Yeah, I mean, even just the suburban Chicago setting, which is basically where all of John Hughes's movies are set, I think, is whether that's from the original screenplay or that was a choice of, of Columbus when they decided to make the movie, I don't know, but it's definitely... But they didn't,
1: but they didn't film this in Chicago for the most part.
0: True, true, but just the idea that it's there and it's very specifically in that location is, is something that John Hughes was big on in his films as well.
1: Josh, what other what other
0: beloved American filmmakers do you want to trash today? I would, I would argue that Chris Columbus is not a beloved filmmaker. <laughs> of course you would argue that because you hate him. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I think some of his movies are quite beloved, the ones that you mentioned. I mean, this one included, as well as Home Alone and Mrs. Doubtfire and those first two Harry Potter movies. But I think the majority of people who love those movies wouldn't say like, oh, I love Chris Columbus. They just like those particular films for often childhood nostalgia reasons. Yeah, and that's what he's good at. Sure. I mean, again, I don't hate this movie, really. I will say I I loved this as a kid. Uh, This was one that was a favorite of mine growing up. I think I saw multiple times. I didn't like it as much this time, but I, I wouldn't say that I hated it at all. It's just the idea of him as like a
1: major auteur, I would take issue with. I think he's a major figure. I don't think you can deny it. Yeah, I just did. Didn't well, who did you want to do then for this episode?
0: Well, I mean, we we usually talk about that later, but I recall that another candidate for this episode was David Mamet. And I don't like David Mamet at all. And I probably enjoyed watching Adventures in Babysitting more than I would have enjoyed watching David Mamet's debut feature. But I think as far as auteurs go, David Mamet, as a leg up on Chris Columbus. As a
1: filmmaker, though? Yeah, and as a major artistic voice. I mean, I love David Mamet, as you know, from, uh, you know, like, my love of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. But I think as a filmmaker, I think you would say that uh, Columbus has succeeded as much as David Mamet. I mean, commercially, yeah, more (laughs) so.
0: But as an artistic voice, anyway, let's talk about Adventures in Babysitting. This movie... Uh, got mixed uh, response from critics. Uh, In that segment, in that Siskel and Ebert segment, it got a thumbs up from Siskel and a thumbs down from Ebert, although they were both kind of like on the fence and it seemed like Siskel mainly gave it a thumbs up because he was hot for Elizabeth Shue, which
1: Mm. you can't really blame him for that, right? She was uh, a teenage uh, heartthrob for all the boys and a lot of the ladies and maybe not all,
0: yeah but uh she had prior to this been in another movie that we talked about on awesome movie year she was daniel LaRusse's girlfriend in the karate kid and that was kind of her only major role prior to this one so she was still a new face here and it was uh, quite a good showcase for her
1: yeah and uh you know she keeps you know they teased her at the end of season three of cobra kai and i'm just waiting for her to come back i look forward to that uh i don't i don't care but <laughs> Josh, real fast, the uh, the answer is if we were going to do the most major figure who did a uh, 1987 debut film, it would have been Peter Jackson, Bad Taste. But we had already covered in the Dave's pick uh, another of the splatter shock Jacksonian error films, so we uh, decided to move away from that.
0: Right? Yeah, we've talked about Peter Jackson a bunch, and I think that's fair to to add some variety. But he's certainly also a way more major auteur than Chris Columbus. Anyway. This guy's got no respect for the Christmas Chronicles 2, Dave. <laughs> I, I think that is <laughs> yeah. correct. Um, so Roger Ebert, interestingly, in, in, the, in that segment, as well as in his written review, talked a lot about the depiction of race in this film, which I thought was interesting. So in his review, he said, Adventures in Babysitting is never quite sure whether to present its plot as reality or a fantasy. That turns out to be a problem in some of the scenes for a tricky reason. Many of the adventures of these white kids are with blacks on Chicago's south side, and the way those scenes are handled depends greatly on how seriously the movie wants us to take them. I thought it showed a lot of imagination to send the suburban kids into some inner-city situations, but then the movie seemed reluctant to give its black characters the freedom to act as they might in real life. They were basically backdrops. By the end of the film, I'd had a couple of real laughs and a few interesting moments, but that was about all.
1: Well, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, you do notice this watching the movie that every um minority character is either a musician or a gang member. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much, yeah, right? That's so, true. I don't I mean, it would have been smart to maybe cast like the brother's best friend as a different color besides white or different ethnicity, right? So I think that's a fair criticism.
0: Right. I mean, and not only are is that how they're depicted. But every time these like clueless white suburbanites encounter them, they're like, wow, you're so cool. Um, you know, they come in the blues club and this, this whole audience of black people is like applauding. And sure, the babysitter blues is good, but
1: it is a little silly there. To- I think they were, you know, impressed that she, um, you know, went for it as much as she did. Sure. Because Josh, nobody gets out of the club without singing.
0: That is very true. So uh, Janet Maslin in the New York Times was uh, less enamored of this even than Ebert was. She said, imagine the terrors that await nice kids from an affluent suburb when a series of mishaps force them to visit downtown Chicago at night with no better chaperone than their feisty blonde babysitter. This is what Adventures in Babysitting asks its audience to do. The kids meet such exotic types as gangsters, thieves, and blues musicians, and everyone they encounter is delighted to make them the center of attention. It's hard to know whether naivete this overwhelming is deliberate or accidental. To be fair, Adventures in Babysitting is determinedly cute, and its pep may well be appreciated by anyone with a frame of reference as narrow as the filmmaker's own. Mr. Columbus knows how to keep things moving, all right, but neither he nor the screenwriter David Simpkins, in their efforts to pack every imaginable kind of scene into this humble story, has the faintest idea of where
1: to stop. So, the 80s is a time of excess. Why I, not have it in our adventures in babysitting movie as well?
0: Sure. I mean, there is a lot. But I feel like... This is the kind of movie, like the whole point of this movie is that they encounter a ridiculous number of obstacles, right? Right. That's like the concept. So you got to kind of pile it on to to make it funny.
1: Yeah, so we've talked about these Into the Night movies before where it basically takes place over one evening with a basic setup and then everything goes insane. And uh, uh, Josh, I brought it up when we talked about John Landis, another American icon who you just want to bury
0: much like so, he buried three people on the set of Twilight Zone, the movie. Oh
1: my God, Josh, you dirty dog! You, so, it was right there. I was just going to talk about the uh, Into the Night films, but Go ahead. Uh, you know, hey, no, I mean, look, we see these date night, game night, all these movies. They're still popular format. I mean, you know, we talk about our love for the Before series. They they can transcend boundaries, but I think a lot of people like After Hours, the Scorsese movie. A lot of people love like those real eighties, like, you know, just crazy situational into the night films. And that's, that's when this genre really started with the film into the night.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, I, a few reviews I read cited after hours here, uh, the Scorsese film, which I still haven't seen, although it's, that's got like a really strong reputation. Now I think it was maybe mixed when it came out and in retrospect, people love that movie.
1: Yeah, well, there was a lot of guys like you who were like, "Oh, Scorsese's a bum. He's a hack. I like he's Scorsese. no David Mabbot." Is that what you? That's no, what said. no.
0: Scorsese is one of the people I would compare to because we did an episode on his first feature, and uh, I think he's a much bigger figure than Chris Columbus <laughs> than just about anybody.
1: Yeah, though. so that is true. But um yeah, no. After Hours, uh, King of Comedy. A lot of these Scorsese movies are. Um, I, I don't want to say After Hours was ahead of its time, but it's like the idea of like, hey. He's doing something that's so unexpected from him that the rest of us have to catch up to what he's doing.
0: Right. I think that's the thing with that movie is that people have kind of caught up with it uh, at, at this point now. Maybe not as much with Adventures in Babysitting. So, uh, no,
1: we, we've we've we caught up and moved past it, I think. We have.
0: Uh, uh, so finally, Michael Wilmington in the Los Angeles Times was a little more generous. He said, personality can carry you a long way. And for stretches of the new teen comedy Adventures in Babysitting, Personality is what keeps it all afloat. It's one of those movies that, however well it works now, might have been pretty bad with a different cast and director. It doesn't really transcend its genre. It just stretches it in amusing and sometimes surprising ways. The script is brisk, but basically a ragbag. A buzzy little farce with a little John Hughes, a little Blues Brothers, a little After Hours. The structure is taut, but the logic is loose the direction abets this flummery by keeping the pace cranked up and the music pouring down like
1: mtv rain this guy needs an editor <laughs> a lot of words in there talking about fitting too much into something yeah there. how dare he put words in his review <laughs> who does that where's his tiktok yeah i don't, what the thing that caught me was it doesn't transcend genres <laughs> like i can't really think of a babysitting movie that's like transcending the genre of like team madcap comedy.
0: Right. I mean, I don't think he's talking about babysitting movies as a genre, but maybe, you know, teen comedies or whatever. And and it's fine that it doesn't. Like, I don't need it to be more than like a good
1: teen comedy. Right. Exactly. I don't even think, I don't even know if this is a teen comedy though. Right. Because I always think of like, especially the 80s, you know, you got the, you got the Hughes movies, you got the teen sex romps, right? This is more of like, I think it's a babysitting movie. That's a different genre its own. Okay. Because yeah. there's the younger kids, you
0: know. Well, right. But I mean, the main, even even as you pointed out, the older brother there is a teenager who he's being babysat, but, uh, you know, is probably too old for that. And then you got his friend there. So really, we just got the one kid, the little girl who loves
1: Thor. And uh, right. the rest
0: of them are all teenagers or older.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't feel like a teen movie to me. Yeah. It just feels like a 1980s, you know, whimsical uh,
0: jaunt. Yeah. I mean, maybe in part because Elizabeth Shue definitely does not look like she's a teenager at
1: all. Here, does she look like Miss March?
0: Yeah, well, that is. I mean, you you get a glimpse at that photo that in the in the fake Playboy where everyone says it's it looks like her, and it's definitely Elizabeth Shue in that photo yeah. as well. She went to
1: shoot like the pictorial, uh, for, not Playboy, but for like the fake pictorial for the magazine of this fake Playboy.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, one of the running jokes here. Is that uh, Chris, her character, looks just like Miss March? in in the Playboy that everyone seems to have. Playboy is Very everywhere. Pop. Yeah, I guess so. It's in, it's a, Daryl's dad has it and the car thieves have it and uh, the frat boys have it. Everybody's got Playboy. They like to read the articles. <laughs> sure. Sure, they do. I feel like that's real for the '80s. Like everybody had every issue. I guess so. I I must have uh, missed that. I don't know that uh, you were
1: like seven at the time.
0: Well, Josh. no, but it's like was my you know was my dad a Playboy subscriber or something? I don't think he was, but maybe he just hit it well.
1: I don't know. Hey, here's the real question, though, Josh, mm. and I'm going to guess your answer is no, but Dave's answer will be yes. Did you have Woods porn growing up? Does Does Dave
0: have an answer for that? Uh, I. I, I didn't, but um, I don't know. Jason, did you? Josh, you
1: didn't have woodsport I right? I feel like
0: Jason has brought this up in the past <laughs>
1: on some other <laughs> episode. Uh, no, it's such a fascinating, strange, uh, you know, kind of phenomena. How can we not talk about wood
0: Yeah, so. no, I feel like I've also mentioned these things. I actually remember at one time reading like a study about it because it's such a prevalent phenomenon about find people finding discarded porn magazines in the woods or elsewhere. I didn't live near woods ever as a kid. I feel like I may have found some kind of porn magazine one time like on the street or something like that. I recall having one or two in my possession prior to when I might've been old enough to purchase them myself and I don't know how else I would've acquired them, but not in the woods. But Jason, I feel like you don't bring this up unless you're about to tell us a story about it.
1: No, I don't. It was just prevalent of where I grew up in the Northeast. That's why I thought Dave had it, you know, like or was aware, like, hey, you go to this tree and, like, you know, go in the the second hole and you'll find some magazines. But uh, what did the study teach you?
0: Um, That it was actually like it was a long time ago that I read this. or I think I read an article about the study or something, but just that it was it was prevalent enough that like. I think it was because the author just like posed some social media question or idly mentioned it and got so many responses that was he was like I have to study this, and uh, you know that it was it was a thing.
1: That's that's pretty much all it taught me. And if you know if you had Miss March 1987 Playboy, that could have been a perfect Woods porn magazine to put out, right? And
0: in fact, you even maybe see how this phenomenon occurs in this film because when Daryl brings the Playboy in the car and uh, Brad gets mad at him and throws it out the window onto the side of the road. What happens to it after that? Some kid finds it in a ditch.
1: Right, it's a sequel. Somehow it ends up in the woods. And then like, I mean, this is- Adventures in Woods Porn is the sequel to this film. (laughs) Adventures in Babysitting 2, the Woods Porn Saga. Anyway,
0: aside from Woodsporn, did you also watch Adventures in Babysitting when you were younger? i would never seen this movie. Oh, weird. How about that? Yeah. How about that, Josh? That is something. Yeah. I mean, this is, like I said, it was a childhood favorite for me. I don't know if I saw it in the theater, but I certainly saw it like on VHS and on TV and stuff. I, I think I watched it a number of times when I was a kid and much like Three Men and a Baby, which also I saw multiple times when I was a kid, I revisited this movie and um, did not really care for it.
1: So what does that make you feel about you as a kid now? Do you like who you used to be or are you disappointed in who you once were?
0: No, I mean I think honestly I've far more often revisited some movie that I liked as a kid and enjoyed it and thought, "Hey, you know, this this holds up. Like I had alright taste." But I don't think anyone needs to feel ashamed of what they liked when they were 7 years old if it doesn't hold up in adulthood.
1: Yeah. But we're just looking for different ways for you to feel that sense of shame. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. So
2: did you watch this as a kid, Dave? Yeah, I know that I loved it, but I didn't remember a single thing about it revisiting it this week. So you know
1: what I remembered, even though I hadn't seen it, Josh, Mm. that iconic box art or the poster that has got to be one of the most famous posters in movie history, right? Yeah. That poster is beautiful and is
0: drawn by Drew Struzan, who of course is an extremely famous poster artist, mainly for his uh, Star Wars and Indiana Jones posters, but tons and tons of those. And yeah, that's a, that's a thing that we've lost now. You don't have hand painted movie posters anymore. It just doesn't happen.
1: And Uh, like woods Poor. right? The woods (laughs) is the internet now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And, and no one's trying, but, you know, I mean, everyone probably knows the poster, but it's uh, uh, Chris with all the kids like kind of uh, scaling the building and the little girls on her back. It's just such a famous poster.
0: Yeah, it is great. And I, I can see that, that even if you hadn't seen the movie, if you've spotted like the VHS box in, in video stores while you were grabbing something else, it's something that would be memorable and, you know, would, would catch your attention. Yes, it definitely does. Yeah. So uh, anything else about the background of this film you want to mention, Jason?
1: I I wanted to reiterate, Josh, I think it's interesting that Columbus decided to direct this and not something that he wrote because he was such a hot writer at the time. I read that he uh, went through 100 scripts before he chose this one. 100 scripts, Josh. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe he wanted to
0: prove himself as a director and show that he could take on whatever material and not just things that he wrote himself? I I don't know. But uh, I wonder what those other 100 or 99 scripts were like, and if any of them would have been better than this. One of them was like Full Metal Jack. (laughs) That would have been an interesting uh, trajectory for Chris Columbus. Yeah, you know, Kubrick
1: was always uh, specking scripts, wasn't Kubrick,
0: another uh, director we've covered in these first feature episodes who uh, I think beats Chris Columbus. There you go.
1: I uh, I think I'll give that one to
0: you. All right. We'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on adventures and babysitting. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about debut feature Adventures in Babysitting from director Chris Columbus. And I've been down on a lot of things here, but like I said, I really liked this movie as a kid and it didn't quite hold up for me now, but I think there's a lot of things that are charming about it, especially that blues singing sequence that we've mentioned and just Elizabeth Shue's performance in general. Like, yes, she's very attractive, as is noted in many of these contemporary reviews, but she's also just really charming. I mean, you can see how she had this supporting role in The Karate Kid And that caught people's attention and showed that she could be the lead in this movie. And she really does carry it, especially when some of the situations are stupid or the humor is ridiculous. Like, she's a very charming presence.
1: I agree. I think, like you're saying, like, I mean, she's charming in uh, Karate Kid also. Like, she's, of course, there's, there's two guys fighting over in that film, right? But um You know, and then she goes on to play Michael J. Fox's girlfriend, Marty Week's girlfriend in the Back to the Future series and the last two. And but I think you're right, she is so personable and likable and she's a good actress, obviously. So she could carry these movies. Like we could have seen more from her. We could have they should have given maybe she didn't have the opportunities or maybe she made different choices, but she could have definitely run this kind of genre for a while, I feel like.
0: Right. I mean, also, she was 24 already at the time of this movie. So however many teen movies would have been left in her, maybe not as many uh, going forward. But yeah, I mean, right from that opening sequence where she's kind of dancing around in her bedroom and lip syncing to uh, And Then He Kissed Me, which is a very odd musical choice for this film, I think. But she certainly has that immediate presence that catches your attention, and is watchable and you wanna see, hey, what, what's gonna to happen to this character? What is it that you don't like about that song? I like that song. I just think it's weird that he's got all this 60s music in this movie for no reason. That, I, like these aren't characters who were alive in the 60s. There's no like nostalgic connection to that music here. It, it's It's just prevalent though throughout the film sort of at random, it seems like. To
1: yeah, me. I mean, look, Chris, I, I will admit, Josh, Chris Columbus, huge Bruce Springsteen fan, huge Little Steven fan. You do see Little Steven in uh, at least one of his movies. Uh, uh, and also, I think he'd soundtrack uh, Christmas with the Cranks, directed by Columbus, maybe. No, Columbus, but, uh, I think, only produced that uh, one. Produced it. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, he's a big fan of that, you know, of that kind of rock music and all the music that shaped it and... Yes, you get a lot of, like you're saying, Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. Uh, just just real, like, you know, kind of, not that the Rolling Stones are underground at that point, but that garage rock feel to a lot of this.
0: Right, or at least these kind of, like, uh, Motown-y or girl group stuff, like, And Then He Kissed Me. And those all, they're all good songs. It just doesn't feel like it fits with the film, you know? Or as you're saying, I guess he's, you know, if he's this big Springsteen fan, And so we go to the frat party, and I'm sure Springsteen was out of his price range, but we get Southside Johnny, who, correct me if I'm wrong, but is sort of like the low rent. Like, if you can't get Springsteen, you get that guy,
1: right? Come on, man. That's like, you you know, again, you're taking like the biggest, you know, Springsteen's one of the biggest stars in the world. Nothing wrong with Southside Johnny, you know, come on. Yeah, but (laughs) does he not seem extremely out of place at this frat party? Yeah, of course he does. <laughs> but these are like Columbus Staples, right? That and the blues club and you know, like I mentioned Christmas Chronicles too, and you get Darlene Love singing a song in the airport. He loves these big musical numbers and you know, it's just something that he does all the time in his movies.
0: Yeah. I mean, the blues number is good, but I feel like there's a lot of other moments, especially that Southside Johnny. I mean, they walk into that frat party and I'm like, what the hell is this Huey Lewis
1: ripoff looking guy doing in this party? I mean, all those dudes at the party look like they were much like Elizabeth's shoes, 24. These guys look like they were 34 or right. 30, you know, yes. five or whatever.
0: No, that so, is true.
1: I mean, and that's definitely an issue
0: throughout, especially because the other the kids that she's babysitting look realistically young, you know she's supposed to be two years older than uh daryl uh and Brad there who are supposed to be fifteen, and they look like they're ten years younger than her
1: yeah they do it's uh it's um definitely some interesting juxtapositions mhm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. juxtaposition thank you. <laughs> So, what w- were there other things? I know you weren't really a big fan of this either, though, right, Jason? I was kind of bummed because, you know, I love Gremlins. I love the Goonies. And this was just kind of, I think, um you know, look, obviously it's a hit. And as, uh, uh, you know, as you were saying, it made $34 million, which, you know, hey, was it the biggest hit? Probably not. But guess what? It ran every day, all day on cable. And, right. You know, huge video store rental, right? So, I, I guess I wanted more Chris columbusness in this thing right more of that whimsy i like the adventures per se but i think like the characters were pretty flat all throughout other than the chris character and even she i think they could have done more given more dimensions to because you know when we talk about gremlins part of the joy of that is how much fun the characters have and you know just showing different sides of themselves
0: yeah. I mean, they try to give her some character development. You know, she has that douchebag boyfriend played by Bradley Whitford who shows up at the beginning and blows her off and is clearly lying <laughs> as, uh, as her, her weirdo friend, Brenda points out. But, you know, we have to wait for later in the movie when she finally spots him at the fancy restaurant with some other girl. And then, you know, she gets the love interest in the form of that frat guy. Who's kind of a, mediocre love interest just there yeah to me she had more chemistry with the car thieves she should have ended up with him right <laughs>
1: yeah seriously what uh you know it's you know i found that bit where they're at the garage in like that shady neighborhood where they're going to pick pick up their car and the dude's outside and he's like oh uh, so i'll just wait for you and they're like "Nah, you can just go <laughs> right and he's like oh cool i'll just go like really after all that we're just gonna like go back to not uh you know trying to be helpful and protective and saying like hey a lot of bad stuff's happened tonight let's stick as a group here.
0: Right, right. And she's like no no no, clearly everything's fine now in this like deserted garage. <laughs> just just leave. And and also in their connection, right, we're supposed to feel like oh hey they, you know, they have some spark here or whatever. And he's just like oh, I guess I'll see you around. And then at the end of the movie, he drives all the way to the suburbs to see her again when he could have just asked for her phone number at the garage.
1: Yeah, well, hey, Josh, he saw her around just like he said he would. You're correct on that, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Um, did you like the kid actors in this?
0: Yeah, they're fine. Um, I mean, the kids themselves are kind of little shits, I think, which is part of the point, or at least, I mean, yeah, you can't. It's kind of a babysitting movie where all the kids are well behaved. No, it's not just that they're not well behaved, it just feels like they're real dicks, you know, especially, I mean, Daryl, the Anthony Rapp character, he's meant to be kind of this crass asshole guy. And, and he is, he succeeds at that. But I feel like you're supposed to get more sweetness with the siblings um, that she is babysitting. And even the little girl, she just is really willfully like, an asshole a lot of the time so I don't know that I was rooting for them you know so the sentimentality of it later on when they're like oh we had the greatest night of our lives and we bonded I just I didn't really buy into it
1: yeah and those are where I see some of those failures that I'm talking about that I that I think like definitely Goonies and Gremlins succeeded in where this failed is like there's really no arcs for any of these kid characters we don't really see like any of them overcome anything like you know, if the little girl had been, you know, afraid of heights, and then had to scale down the building, which is a well-shot sequence. There's good. There's good drama and tension in that sequence. But like, each thing could have been ratcheted up. Like, um, you know, the the is it Brad the 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 brother? Yeah, I see the brother, right? Like he loves her, but she's too old. So like, can we give him a little arc of like? you know, meeting someone his own age at the end. Just little little bells and whistles, I think, could have gone a long way.
0: here. Right. And I think with his crush on her, I mean, she's older. And it, like I said, she looks a lot older because of the actor's ages, but she's really only meant to be two years older. So they set up the idea that, that like they could get together. Fifteen-year-olds and 17-year-olds can definitely date. But instead of that, she hooks up with the douchey, the frat guy and like that's okay. I didn't necessarily want her to hook up with Brad, but I feel like they're they're building some expectation that, like you said, it would be better if he had a sort of alternate option too. I yeah.
1: think it had to be an alternate option. I don't think you could have had them hook up because she looks like, you know his mom, uh, <laughs> an adult woman and yeah. he looks like, you know, a teenage kid, right? So, right. No, I agree,
0: uh, but I think they could have better um. Right. They could have given him something that. else. Right. Yeah.
1: So And then we have this B story with Brenda who runs away from home to a bus stop and, um, you know, just ends up with a lot of people trying to, you know, steal from her or threaten her. It's not a good sub.
0: No, it's awful. They could have just cut everything with Brenda from the time that she makes her first phone call until the time that they pick her up. It would You're right. It absolutely no difference. She has no bearing right. on the plot whatsoever. Right.
1: No, the the plot is it's an impetus. It's an inciting incident right. for them to go out, right? right. They have to rescue Brenda.
0: But once that happens, I mean, and and you talk about like really stereotypical depictions of like the city or whatever. I mean, everything in that bus station is so ridiculous. Like the guy who just keeps flashing a gun at her randomly, like he's just hanging out in the bus station, flashing a gun at people. And it's just, it's terrible.
1: But I was like, at least that guy's white, you know? (laughs) So like, you know, in in regards to like, at least they didn't make him a minority too, because like, you know they've made every other character who has nothing else to do except accost cost people of uh, a minority right? right you know like josh you watched the unedited version i think i watched it on disney plus which is this weird edited version where they like there's the scene where the gangs are on the train by the way where were these gangs ever when we were growing up like i watched like the warriors i watched this i've never seen these like very like dramatically dance-oriented, <laughs> uh, leather-vest-wearing gangs, right, who were like, this train caused ah, turf, right? Like, it's a, it's a strange thing, but, like, the way we watched it is, like, they call her, they're like, hey, why don't you sit down, you witch, right? Which is, you know, clearly overdubbed for yes. bitch. So you saw that version, and it's got the line like you said, uh, "Don't fuck with the babysitter," right? right so. Which is
0: like an iconic line, and I think they they change it to what? Don't mess with the babysitter, yeah. or whatever. Um, Don't fool with yeah. the babysitter. Oh, that's even worse.
1: Yeah, the whole it thing is, is it doesn't even make sense. The whole thing's not yeah. good. Like, there's no reason to, but yet they leave the Playboy stuff in, and it's like there's no reason to cut anything out from this. Like, you know, yeah, like you know, I think at one point, uh, doesn't he say like, yeah you don't understand. She keeps her legs locked, right? Yes. And it's like, so that's okay. But saying, you know, bitch or fuck is not like, just leave the whole movie as it is,
0: bro. I agree. And that was why I turned it on, on Disney plus also. And I saw that disclaimer at the beginning and then just turned it right off and got myself the DVD with the uncensored version. And that was, uh, a better experience, but the the Woods Porn version, right? Exactly. That's where I found story. it. I just walked out my front door, <laughs> down the street, into
1: an alleyway, and there it was. You were like Hustler, January nineteen ninety four, Jugs, February nineteen seventy seven. Oh look, it's Adventures in Babysitting, uncut. <laughs> But I wanna go back to those gangs because
0: I think you're right. And this goes to what Ebert's talking about in his review about like, is this a fantasy? Cause you 100% expect those gangs to start a musical number.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> point. Especially in this movie where everyone else does a musical number for some point. Right.
0: I mean, they seem like they're something out of West side story or whatever, or, or Greece. There was definitely one of them who had like the, the 1950s greaser style haircut that I don't think gang members in 1987 were sporting. So yeah, I mean, that's just the absurdity of it. And it's like, is this supposed to be like, the gritty real danger of the city that these suburban kids are facing? Or is it like dance fighting?
1: Hmm. I'm always going to pick dance fighting as you well know. Yes. But, but no, I understand because like you're heightening, you're heightening and we get to the big sequence where, you know, the girl's repelling down the ceiling at her father's building. And, you know, like I said, like we could be building not just um, character, bits on this, but also like kind of story bits, like the night gets crazier and crazier as it goes on. Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, and it does get crazy. You know, it continues to get crazy and there's some good callbacks, like the weirdo tow truck driver with the huge beard who. Pruitt. Pruitt. Yeah. Who they kind of encounter again uh, when they go to the hospital after their confrontation with the gang and Brad gets a stab wound in his foot. So, yeah. I mean, there's, I think that's what one of those reviews is talking about is that it's, it's a taut plot. You know, it, it's kind of, you can see the mechanics of it, but it it also feels kind of chaotic that in the individual elements are not yeah. as well thought out.
1: Saying the word bitch? No. Leaving in Pruitt trying to shoot the man that he catches sleeping with his wife? Yes. Right. What the hell is up with that, like, arbitrary censorship?
0: It is totally, totally ridiculous. Um. Dave, did you
2: enjoy this again? I feel like I liked it better than both of you. Um, I mean, I liked all the heightened stuff. You know, I like how absurd it gets. And so like even the stuff uh with with what's it was it Brenda the friend yeah. in the city like even even some of that stuff i thought was just it was so stupid that i you know it came back around to where i actually really liked that stuff so uh yeah i liked when this got really really silly uh, you know i didn't love it and uh you know it's it's not going to be like my favorite of the year or something like that but uh, i thought there was a lot of fun to but be but what out if there. it is Dave? <laughs> i think we're, this is my favorite of the year oh yeah, boy
0: i think we're gonna talk about dave's favorite movie of all time later this year so <laughs> very possibly
1: that yeah. would take a lot josh we keep talking about uh elizabeth shu who's wonderful as we admit. Yes. so many uh 1980s names bandied about for this uh you mentioned john hughes he was not in the running to play the chris character but molly ringwald was and i'm glad she didn't because i feel like this would have been going backwards for her in a way. Yeah, and that may be why she didn't decide to do it if she was offered it. But you're right. She's done this kind of thing before. Julia Louis Dreyfus, hilarious. You know, she's huh. great. But, you know, I don't know if uh, that age fits. Then I saw Michelle Pfeiffer's name. And I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer was already playing much older than this by this
0: point. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd have to look up how old exactly all those people are, but those sound like they would be too old
1: for this. Yeah, it's funny because like, you know, you got like Melanie Griffith, Andy McDowell. And I'm like, man, if you look at what they were doing, like this is 87 by 89. I'm pretty sure Melanie Griffith is like working girl and Andy McDowell is already, you know, a few years away from doing like Groundhog's Day. Like I'm, I'm confused at the age of this, you know, Brooke Shields, something like that makes sense to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, but as we keep saying, even Elizabeth Shue—I mean, she was 24—and you could 100% see her playing a full adult role at this same time. So it's a weird. It's a weird gray area. It also wouldn't have been a big deal if she was a 24-year-old babysitter. I feel like that would have been fine, too. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think in order for some of the plot beats to work, like, she has to be a high school senior, so it makes sense that, you know, the kid... Because, I, like I was saying, they have to make give you the idea that Brad's crush on her is not just, like, absurd. That he's only two years
1: younger. They're both high school students. It's not completely unfeasible. The thing I thought was okay with Brad was, like, you know, when he's like, Hey look, I know uh you're out of my league and I'm just a little diaper baby and you know, you're a hot lady who's in Playboy, but uh you should think higher of yourself and not let guys like Mike, you know, hit you with a tire iron or whatever. I mean I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but like you Know the character did try to reinforce uh self worth for the Chris character,
0: right? And I mean, her moment of standing up to Mike, the Bradley Whitford character at the French restaurant, is of course an important character bit for her where she finally uh dumps him who treats her like crap and uh then gets with the frat guy at the end who seemingly probably will also treat her like crap.
1: But and what was uh the Mike's uh girlfriend's name in that? She's Sesame. She had a, her name was Sesame. That can't possibly be right. I bet you it is right. Her name was Sesame. Not like Cecily or something? No, Sesame. Like, like the seed. Right.
0: No, I hear what you're saying. I just don't believe that
1: could possibly be true. Like the thing that's open in passwords. No, I I
0: know what that is, but I don't, why would they name a character that like a random little background (laughs) character who I don't think even has a line. He's, he's right, it's Sesame. Wow, okay, you know what? I I stand corrected, and I would like wow. to know what the hell happened there.
1: <laughs> that, that's a mystery that we'll find when we get back to Woodsport.
0: That needs to be a whole like multi-part podcast. How is this character named
1: Sesame? That's a weird thing, for sure. Josh, this uh, did have a lot of uh, future stars in there, teen or post teen years, you know, obviously Elizabeth Shue's in there. So Andrew Shue gets some good love in the, uh, in the, uh, frat boy scene. You got Lolita Davidovich, you got Vincent D'Onofrio, you got, uh, Penelope Ann Miller, you know, all these, all these, uh, people went on to bigger things. Right. Bradley Whitford too. And, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio certainly makes quite an impression
0: as Dawson, the mechanic who also kind of looks like Thor, who is, uh, the obsession of that little girl. And, uh, you know, of course, Vincent D'Onofrio later did join the Marvel Cinematic Universe as Kingpin. Right.
1: Not as Thor. No, not at all.
0: So, uh, do you want to rate this out of five Playboys? Five, uh,
1: yeah, five Miss Marches, shall yeah, we say? Sure. Yeah.
0: Miss March, the classic I... film. <laughs> Was that a movie? Yes, yeah, from the the whitest
1: kids you know. It's a terrible movie. Oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> yes. Uh, two and a half for me. You get, uh, you get, two full pictorials and then half of it's ripped off in the third one for unbeknownst reasons. I just didn't think this one all came together. I love like eighties fun whimsy. Like I said, all that stuff and a lot of uh, the Columbus stuff before and after I think hits it better than this.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm going to give this two and a half playboys. And like I said, I love this as a kid. And despite my trashing of Chris Columbus, I fully expected to enjoy this again and other than the nostalgia factor, not much of this, and Elizabeth Shue, not much of this really worked for me. So two and a half out The of music's five. good. Dave, uh, how would you rate this?
2: I'm going three and a half. You guys are bummers. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: All right. I like it, Dave. <laughs> Thank, Thank
1: you for taking it to us.
2: We'll yeah. come back and talk about the legacy
0: of Adventures in Babysitting. <laughs> Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we have been talking about Chris Columbus's directorial debut, Adventures in Babysitting. And since this is that first feature spotlight, I feel like we need to talk about Chris Columbus's career. Uh, My opinion has been pretty clear. I mean, to me, he's a director who's made a number of commercial successes that we've mentioned, Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, both Home Alone or the first two Home Alone movies, the first two Harry Potter movies. But... I don't think he's a particularly interesting or distinctive director. He's kind of floundered in various commercial efforts in later years that didn't necessarily do all that well, including some kind of sappy uh, tear-jerkers like Stepmom and Bicentennial Man. Uh, he attempted to capture recapture his Harry Potter magic by launching the Percy Jackson franchise that didn't really work. Uh, he did the film version of Rent, which is terrible. Um, <laughs> I I am not a huge fan even though I like like the original Home Alone that's a movie that I loved as a kid and have watched as an adult and I think does hold up but I mean overall I just feel like this guy is kind of a
1: nothing uh, yeah you're wrong you're just wrong Josh sure he's had some misses in there but he's got a lot of big iconic hits and uh, I mean Christmas Chronicles 2 his last film was pretty good I gotta say you gave it two stars on Letterboxd I looked this <laughs> up <laughs> <laughs> well, then it's pretty terrible, I got to say. Interesting how, oh, uh, I don't even know what, uh, what's that letterbox again, Josh? Go for Jason on Letterboxd. Oh, I should look, I should be more, um, you know, vigilant with my own ratings, I guess. I thought I liked that movie. Did I also, uh, but I like Goonies, right, Josh? I assume so. I didn't look that one up. I just was
0: going through Chris <laughs> Columbus's filmography and clicked on that page on Letterboxd and saw your response that
1: just was not positive. <laughs> I guess you're right. My bad, bro. Um, he uh, produces a lot of films. You, you care for him as a producer, Josh? Like uh, him as a producer? I mean,
0: I think he's uh, he's helped get some kind of interesting indie films off the ground, and that's cool. Good for him on that front, right? Yet, yeah, like, Yes, God, Yes, I think is one, and uh, I forget what else. But there were there were a few uh, films yeah. that you wouldn't necessarily expect his name to be attached to. So that yeah. maybe maybe his production company helped finance, and so that's cool. Yeah, 1492 Pictures. They produce all of Dave's favorite directors' movies. Really? Robert Eggers. Robert Oh yeah, Robert oh, Eggers is good. Nice. Yeah, so stuff like that you wouldn't expect him to be attached to. So, uh I mean good for him as like kind of a Hollywood player there, but as an
1: artistic voice. Do you think Josh cuz you keep bringing up like he doesn't have a definitive style and I'm like saying like well, I feel like you can go to like certain tropes that he keeps working on in all of his things. Do you think that an auteur needs to have like a specific visual style that, like, you know, for instance, we talk about Spike Lee and you're gonna see like that reverse uh, Dolly, you know, walking shot or something like that. Does that? Do you think that is a need for an auteur to have a visual style or can they just tell good stories over?
0: No, I mean, I think that's one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of well known, you know, kind of auteurist directors where you can point to certain things that they do visually like you were saying about Spike Lee. I don't think it's the only thing. I I think to me, there has to be some kind of unifying vision, whether that's a visual style, it's thematic, it's narrative, it's maybe, you know, collaborators that they develop a relationship with or whatever. I mean, you know, we, we talked about Martin Scorsese. You look at Martin Scorsese's filmography, he's worked in tons of different genres with a variety of different approaches, but I certainly wouldn't argue that Scorsese isn't an auteur. Um, and maybe I'm maybe I'm not looking closely enough. You clearly have found certain thematic elements that you feel like are in Columbus's films that I maybe wasn't paying attention to, and that is a thing.
1: Yeah. Well, he's got uh, on the docket supposedly Miraculous, which is a kid's show, the movie version of that. I don't know if that's been made or ever going to get made. But uh, The Secret Life of Road Crews, a posse of road workers, are mankind's last hope for protection from an alien threat. I don't know. That sounds terrible.
0: And, All right. Uh, I think that connects like Dave, did you you watched uh Pixels, right? Where the video sure gamers did. have to to yeah. be the secret saviors of Earth or whatever. I feel like
2: that's a lesser version of that. Yeah, yeah. No, not not great, but uh I, I laughed. You know, it's still a Sandler movie. There's still some laugh out loud moments. Mm,
1: it is still a Sandler movie. I'll agree with you on that. Yeah. What do you think of the alternate title? A Night on the Town. Not very good. No, Adventures no. in Babysitting is a much better title. It's a good title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll give it that. Josh, uh, Elizabeth Shue nominated for an Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas. And uh she's good. She's good in everything. She's in The Boys now. We've talked about her. She's great. We yeah, like
0: her. Yeah, yeah. She's had a lot of TV work and kind of supporting roles. She was a big star for this moment in the 80s and early 90s and now is just kind of Had a steady career. But yeah, she's always, she's someone who's always welcome if you see her. I haven't watched The Boys, but I know that's a a highly acclaimed show and I'm sure she's, uh, you know, enjoyable to watch on that.
1: Right. I think she kind of just purposely stepped back from like the limelight and everything like that. Yeah. You you got to respect that. So not much on Keith Coogan. Um, I think he was also in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. So he's got that going for him. Really quite a babysitter canon. Yeah. I mean, he was a, he
0: was a, Kid actor with some small parts there through the early 90s. And uh, Jason, I don't know how you didn't mention his cameo as himself in your favorite film, Jay and Silent Bob Reboot.
1: Yeah, I know how I didn't mention it, Josh. So I definitely <laughs> looked it up. I don't even remember. Dave, do you remember him in that? Like, what was no. he just at a convention or something like that?
2: Probably. there was a, There was a lot of cameos like that, oh. I would imagine. Did he show yeah, up and okay. say, hey, Jay and Silent Bob, would you like to have an adventure in babysitting? That sounds probably, probably like
1: something yeah. that, uh, as on the nose as that, if not that. <laughs> um, Anthony Rapp, as you mentioned, Josh, uh, you talked about Rent. He was uh, part of the original Broadway production and reteamed with Columbus when uh, Columbus directed Rent, the film, which you hate.
0: Yeah, it's not. I mean, I've never seen it on stage, but the film I did not care for. But Anthony Rapp, a big Broadway star, tons and tons of stage productions. And I know him as a regular on uh, Star Trek Discovery currently um which is
1: enjoyable and i know maya bruton who played sarah the little girl you keep mentioning as shelly from parker lewis can't lose
0: yes i also loved parker lewis can't lose as a kid and i feel like that's probably another thing that would not hold up but i still remember them synchronizing their swatches
1: yeah mr lewis mr randall <laughs> yeah
0: that was seriously like one of my
1: favorite tv shows
0: during that period. i like that
1: show too yeah i like that show all right, uh, Penelope Ann Miller, who played Brenda, we mentioned uh, obviously. Kindergarten Cop, Carlitos, Wade. She was just in Dahmer, uh, and uh, she's playing Nancy Reagan in that Reagan movie if it ever comes out.
0: Yeah, she's uh, you know she's another very steadily working uh, character actor. So unlike Chris Columbus, who went on to this big Hollywood career, David Simpkins. Uh, not as big a deal, but a steady career in TV as a writer, producer on a lot of different series, including Charmed, Warehouse 13, The Dresden Files, more like sci-fi fantasy-ish stuff. But, uh, you know, this was this was probably
1: the high point of his feature film career. Yeah. Bradley Whitford obviously has three Emmys three for three different shows. Did you know that? I did not. I mean, I would have imagined that The West Wing is one of
0: them, but... Uh I'm not sure. West
1: Wing Transparent and The Handmaid's Tale. He played Steven oh, Sondheim yeah. in Tick Tick Boom. And of course, Eric's pregnant. <laughs> <Magnet>, Billy Madison. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad we got an Adam
0: Sandler impression here into this episode. <laughs> it had to be
1: done. It, it had not. to be done. It did not. It definitely did.
0: Um, so I mean, thanks to the success, like like you were saying, Jason, you know, this not only made some okay money at the box office, but became this staple on TV and on VHS, and so there was an effort to turn it into a TV series in 1989 that never got past the pilot stage, but that pilot did air on TV, starring Jennifer Guthrie as Chris, who's not someone I'm familiar with, but it did feature Joey Lawrence and Brian Austin Green as Brad and Daryl. Man, talk
1: about woods porn. (laughs) Yeesh!
0: I attempted (laughs) to find this, to watch it, and there was a version posted on YouTube that was so low quality that's clearly been ripped from a copy of a copy of a copy of a VHS tape that you
1: can't even really discern what is happening on screen. So I didn't bother watching it. But Josh, we appreciate that you tried to find it. Um, Josh, uh, did you know that Raven Simone was once attached to a, a sequel that didn't get off the ground called Further Adventures in Babysitting? Was she going to play Chris? How was it? I a think sequel? she well. I mean, I don't know if it was a sequel or a modernization of it. So, uh, but yes, it would be Raven Simone as the babysitter.
0: Sure. I mean, I did actually watch the eventual remake that that was made in 2016 that did not star Raven Simone, but starred Sabrina Carpenter and Sophia Carson. In this version, there are two babysitters and they're rivals, and they they there are more kids because they're babysitting for two families, and they have to bring all the kids into the city because. There's there's no Brenda character equivalent. One of the kids like sneaks out to go to a concert, so they have to go get him. And then they have all the various misadventures in the city and it's quite terrible, but surprisingly only slightly less bad, I felt like watching it this time than the original. Instead of a blues song, they have a rap battle and you want to watch these these Disney Channel stars do a rap battle in the inner city of Chicago. That is a thing.
1: I was gonna say each of these babysitters should have formed a gang and then, you know, with the kids, and then they could have fought the other rival babysitter kid gang on the subway platform.
0: No, of course it's Disney, so they have to like dislike each other and then they become best friends by the end of the movie after their little ordeal in the city. But it does have, you know, we talked about the censorship and it's it was a Disney original, so it references like they actually say, Don't mess with the babysitter in that one. And then and in the rap battle, they're they're one of them is calling the other one a witch. So clearly some self-awareness about the censorship in that film. That's clever. Thank you
1: for your service, Josh, watching that for uh, us, because I don't ever want to watch that.
0: No, no, and nor <laughs> should you, nor should anyone really. But it's, <laughs> it's fully uncensored on Disney+. Plus. Wonderful. So uh, anything else about the legacy of this film you want to talk about? I mean, real
1: fast, Lita Davidovich, we mentioned, go watch Blaze, go watch the Thomas Crown Affair, True Detective. Uh, Speaking of uh, HBO shows, did you know that Clark Johnson, who played one of the gang leaders, directed the pilot and finale of The Wire? That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, he's a big TV director. I feel like he probably also directed a bunch of episodes in between those, (laughs) the pilot and the finale of The Wire and a lot of other shows as well.
1: Yeah, John Ford Newman, who played Pruitt, a very famous playwright for a couple of white chicks sitting around talking. He won an Emmy for writing on Sid Elsewhere and was in movies like Flirting with Disaster and Next Stop Greenwich Village. Yeah, a lot of
0: interesting uh, performers in small parts here in this film. So that is Adventures in Babysitting. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can babysit us online and on social media. You can find us on all the
1: socials. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on those things, those platforms. Get lost in them. Don't go outside and enjoy your life. Don't interact with other human beings. Just go through social media and like a lot of pictures. If you do want to see what used to be called the website, I have one called Eat This Comedy. Uh, you can also find me on Letterboxd to go for jason Of course, we're at AwesomeMovieYear.com, AwesomeMovieYear.com facebook and instagram awesome movie pod on twitter
0: yeah i was recently chastised for how terrible our instagram (laughs) is let's fix it we should i think we can make that happen maybe we'll 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 put that as who chastised you i was uh my sister who is a big big awesome movie your listener shout out to brandy uh we appreciate the the constructive criticism she is right right. she is yeah our Instagram's terrible yeah it is um but uh, those others, uh, uh, you find us on Instagram. Yeah, our Facebook <laughs> and uh, Twitter or X, are uh, there's more stuff there. So uh, you can find some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com. And uh, I am at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, at Signalbleed on X, Twitter, and at Signalbleed on Letterboxd. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, follow us on social media at piecingpod, and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. You can tell us about how much you actually love adventures and babysitting, (laughs) how wrong we are. Yeah,
1: I
0: hope, uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of people love it, or else we wouldn't have been talking about it, They do, indeed.
1: So, Jason, speaking of things that a lot of people love, what is in our next episode? Actually, Josh, that is going to be an interesting topic, because we're going to the bomb, And it might be the most notorious bomb of all time that isn't named Heaven's Gate, right? It's Ishtar, but it has been reassessed uh, over and over again since this time. I am looking forward to watching it and seeing what all this trouble's about.
0: Yeah, we will ourselves assess that. So tune in next time for Ishtar. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year.
2: Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year make sure to follow awesome movie year on Facebook at awesome movie pod on Twitter and at awesome movie year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple podcasts.
0: An all points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.
1: Da